Luke chapter 18. Let me quickly lay out for you the story. Another one of Jesus' parables. This one about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's a simple story that involves two main players. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Somehow we know intuitively in our gut, when we hear this story, when we hear it read in our own hearing this morning, that this is an uneven match between a Pharisee and a tax collector. Both came to the temple to pray. But the Pharisee had a very different prayer than the tax collector. Now, before you draw your own personal conclusion and you start booing and hissing at this Pharisee, it's important for you to realize that this man had some very good attributes. There's a lot of good to be said about him. We learn in the few verses here, according to Luke, that this man tithes his income. That is, that he gives... 10% of his income to the temple. And he tithes not just the the net income, but he tithes the gross. I wonder if we line our lives up against the Pharisee and ask ourselves the question, well, how many of us are giving to that degree? How many of us are tithing our income, giving 10% to the Lord's work and and to causes like Hearts for the Hungry and Meeting God in Missions and the Great Commission Fund to support missionaries around the world to further God's work on earth. So be careful before you criticize Him too much. He not only gives a tenth of His income, He fasts twice a week. How many of us have fasted a meal recently? Perhaps maybe that's one of the ways in which we can come alongside this vision to provide rice for hungry children in Haiti. I know that I could probably go for quite a while in fasting and not hurt me physically way too much. As a Pharisee, he not only fasted and tithed, but as a Pharisee, he was committed to live by the Torah the law of God, the law of Moses. He, he wanted to keep ritually pure. He wanted to live with piety towards God. If this guy were living today, today he would, he would be one of the people that undoubtedly we would nominate on our annual nominating ballot to be an, an elder in the church. Maybe a teacher in a community life group or a Sunday school class or, or a ministry team leader or or at least helping out on the hospitality team with a helping hand. This was a good and decent man. And it occurs to me that that churches all across our globe today in the 21st century depend upon good, decent people like this. People who, who attend church and worship every week, who are faithful in giving, who are willing to, to minister and serve... Uh, as an usher or a greeter or a Sunday school teacher or a choir singer who will serve on committees and task forces, 
who are there whenever the church doors are open, who respond to special appeals to give over and above. Churches are built. Church pews are lined with people who are good people like this. But there's just one problem with this guy. And, and you get a hint of it when you hear his prayer. Luke tells us that, that he stood apart from the crowd. He, he separated himself out. And as he prayed, he looked to God and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other people. Those thieves, those rogues, those adulterers, those ne'er-do-wells, those tax collectors. Which then leads us to the second character in our story, the tax collector. Now, I want you to understand, and, and I know you probably don't have much fondness for the IRS, but the animosity that an average Jew would have had toward a tax collector is, is light years beyond what we feel about the IRS and the federal government. For Luke's readers, there would have been nothing about this tax collector that they would have liked. He represented a, a, a dirty scumbag who'd sold him his conscience out and sold his own people out to the likes of Rome. In the eyes of Jesus' Jewish audience, a tax collector would have been considered a turncoat because their conscience was for sale. Tax collectors' purpose was to, to line Caesar's pocket, but they also were given permission by Caesar to add some surcharges onto Rome's taxes to line their own pockets. And so these were wise guys who were on the take. They were breakers of kneecaps who stole from the poor and became personally rich because of someone else's misery. And I have to believe that the original audience that heard Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector must have thought this story was a joke. Have you heard the one about the tax collector who went to the temple to pray? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. A tax collector go to the temple to pray? The whole place would have burst out into laughter. But as we read on, we see that this is indeed no joke. So Jesus has set us up from the start. He has sent into this story two main characters, a Pharisee who is one of the most respectable people in all of Judaism, and he has sent into the temple with the Pharisee this tax collector who is a mafia-style enforcer who is just a plain bad apple. And the Pharisee stands by himself and he says, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like those people and especially like that tax collector over there. That's his speech. Enter into the story the tax collector, who also stands a bit apart. Like the Pharisee, he's not in the crowd either. He stands a bit apart, but unlike the Pharisee, he's not even able to look up into heaven. 
he just looks at his shoe tips. And he musters up enough air to say, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus concludes the story by saying, I tell you that that this one, referring to the tax collector, that this man went to his house justified rather than the other man. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus' audience would have said, what? Hold the phone. What a shock this must have been to the people listening to this story. Jesus had turned their expectations upside down and inside out. It was not the Pharisee, but it was the sinning tax collector who is now justified according to Jesus' story. Upside down, inside out. So that's the story. But what's the lesson? Well, the last lines of Jesus' parable point to the importance of humility. And granted, that's an important lesson. We all need to to be humble. We need to come to God with a broken and contrite spirit. And Scripture assures us that that God does not turn those who come with a broken and contrite heart away. That He is close to those who are broken and contrite in spirit. But I believe this parable points to a an even deeper truth that, that really is the point of this story. If you want to explore, and we only have one more parable to explore next week, I haven't quite decided which one I'm going to do, but if you want to explore the parables more and see them through Middle Eastern eyes, I would commend to you a book by the title of Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, written by Kenneth Bailey. It's kind of a deep read, My friend Ron Franklin gave me a copy of it, and I've been reading it, and there are such tremendous insights. And so many of the times we read these stories of Jesus through Western, postmodern, 21st century eyes, and we fail to get the point of the story. And and this book has helped me to, to look at what would the original audience have heard? How would they have seen it through their context in a Middle Eastern cultural context? And I believe that that while the point and the lesson there about the importance of humility is there, I believe that the parable points to an even, even deeper truth about our relationship to this holy God of ours. The tax collector comes to God in prayer completely open, completely honest, completely ready for God to come into his life. He uh, Luke gives him very few words. He, he doesn't speak very much in this story. He just has one sentence that he prays. When's the last time you prayed with just one sentence? And his sentence is, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, I have to imagine that there were more words in this tax collector's heart that, 
that, that maybe he was thinking about the words of King David and his repentance when David cried out to God after being confronted by the prophet and cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me. I, I imagine that those things were coursing through the tax collector's heart and mind. He knows he's done wrong. He knows he needs God to come into his life. He knows that his life needs to be turned around, upside down, inside out. He knows that he needs to get back on the path of love and grace. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, is much more guarded in his prayer. And it seems to me that he's almost talking more to himself than he is to God when he says, thank you that I'm not like all these other fools. Thank you, Lord, that I follow all the religious laws and I fast and I tithe, that I follow the rules so very carefully. It seems to me that the Pharisee shows us the depths of his heart and shows us that he really doesn't need God in his life. J. Ellsworth Cullis, the chancellor of Asbury Seminary, wrote a book, The Parables from the Backside, and in that he wonders if the Pharisee was actually using his religious and rituals to keep God out of his life. Callus writes, The purpose of religion is to draw us nearer to God, but the Pharisee was using his religion to hold God at a safe distance. It's an easy trap, isn't it, to fall into? I wonder how many of us are holding God at a safe distance. Full surrender is too much. Stepping away from some of those addictive patterns in our lives requires too much. Some of us are like the elder brother that we looked at last, last week, and it's much easier to simply follow the rules and the regulations. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. To approach our faith analytically, to calculate just how much we have to do to consider ourselves a good Christian. And it seems to me that this parable, like so many of Jesus' parables, should carry with it a warning that says, this will be hazardous to your views and opinions about how religion works and about how God works. Because Jesus is all about upsetting what we think is right and turns us upside down and inside out. And what this parable about is about is not, as it seems to say, the virtue of humility, because the Pharisee's problem is not that he's showing off. The Pharisee's problem is that he thinks that his stack of good deeds is enough to accomplish his salvation. Friends, hear me if you don't know it already. The wrong way to approach God is by your own good works. The Pharisee represents all those who try to come to God on the basis of their own good works. May I remind you that human goodness cannot and will not ever reconcile you to a fiercely holy God. I wish I could tell you today that if you would just be a bit better than you are today, that God would love you more. That's not true. People who try to come to God by their own good works are in reality trusting in themselves. Luke says that plainly in verse 9. 
to trust in ourselves is to, in actuality, to distrust God. And the two don't go together. They are mutually exclusive. You can't trust in God and in yourself. A person might protest and say, well, yes, I'm trusting in both God and myself, but I would submit to you that it is impossible when it comes to salvation to trust both in God and in yourself. John Calvin makes that point very clear when he writes, every man that is puffed up with self-confidence carries on open war, open war with God to whom we cannot be reconciled in any other way than by denial of ourselves, that is, by laying aside all confidence, all confidence in our own virtue and our own righteousness, and instead rely on the mercies of God. We know this in our head. We memorized it in Sunday school and Awanas. But the reality of it has missed the mark somewhere. I don't know how and where and when and all the details. May I remind you that your salvation is a gift from God and it has nothing to do with you. Paul makes that point abundantly clear when he writes to the Ephesians. In chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, I've put the verse on there in case you didn't memorize it. I want you to read it aloud with me and maybe let the truth sink deep down this morning. Read it with me. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God not by works. And here's the deal. If we add just a small amount of our own human effort, our own works, to what God has done, the temptation will be to boast in our own works and diminish the finished work of Christ. To try to come to God by our good works is to, in actuality, to trust in ourselves even if those good works are mingled in with true faith. The Pharisee was thinking about all of his good deeds, the fasting, the giving, plus probably a whole lot more that we don't have details about. But he wasn't looking at his heart, the condition of his heart, and we see through this lens that his heart was filled with pride and arrogance. Friends, may I remind you that man may look on the outward appearance, but God looketh, on the heart. Outwardly, we can smile and be friendly and charitable and cheerful towards someone, while at the very same time harboring uh, hatred and resentment in our heart and plotting revenge against that individual. Outwardly, we can intend to give a million dollars if we had that much money to give to a, a cause like Hearts for the Hungry or something else, and people would say about us, what a generous person he or she is. But God who looks on our motives would make us ask the question, did we give that amount to please God or did we give that amount to get men's applause? 
Outwardly, I can be faithful to my wife all of my life, but in my thought life, in my heart, I may be committing adultery with, with other women every day. God looks on the heart. And no one who's honest with themselves and examines his own heart or her own heart before God can hope to come before this fiercely holy God on the basis of her or his good works. We may be able to clean up our outward behavior, but we cannot clean up our desperately wicked hearts. Only God, through His gracious Spirit, can do that. Which leads us to the second and final lesson here, exemplified in the tax gatherer, that if you exalt yourself by representing and presenting your good works to God, that in the end, on the day of judgment, you will be humbled if you can present yourself to God on the basis of your own good works. But if you come to God humble, broken, pleading for God's mercy, you will, Jesus says, you will be exalted on that day when you stand before Him. So therefore, the... the, the final lesson, the punchline of all of this story is that we must remember that we approach God as unworthy sinners. We deserve wrath. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. That's the wages of our sin. But God in His grace has provided a highway for us to experience His amazing grace, to experience forgiveness and love and joy and peace. But you need to realize that this is a gift of God and you must come to Him pleading for His mercy. Charles Simeon observes, Never are you higher in God's esteem than when you are lowest in your own. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And I want you to note that the tax collector approached God Himself. He didn't need a priest to do that. Friends, you don't need a priest or a pastor to approach God. You can do it yourself. Because the wonderful truth is that right now we have a great high priest who is seated at the right hand, exalted on high. He's at the right hand of the Father and He's interceding for you and me. And He serves as our advocate at the very throne of the Father and pleads our case. And Scripture tells us that, that it was this tax collector, not the Pharisee, whom the original audience would have thought would have come out smelling really good in this, but it was the tax collector who approached God asking for mercy, not for rewards based on his own merits. He did not say, be merciful to me because I was humble enough to come and confess my sins. He didn't say, be merciful to me and I'll work hard to pay you back. He just said, be merciful to me. For I'm a sinner. And although this man living under the Jewish sacrificial system probably didn't understand that Jesus would offer Himself as the perfect and final Lamb of God for the sins of the world, He did know that without the shedding of blood that there is no forgiveness of sins. And it was not, it was not the blood of bulls and goats or sheep that atoned for sin, but they merely pointed ahead to what God's Savior would do in offering Himself in the place of sinners like you and me. To cry out to God for mercy is to trust in the only provision God has made for the penalty of our sins. 
the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the good news of the Gospel is this. When sinners like you and me approach God for mercy, humbly and broken, just as I am without one plea, that God graciously and instantly justifies. Jesus emphatically says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went to his home justified rather than the other. This man walked into the temple as a guilty, despicable tax collector who ripped off people for his own greed, but he walked out of the temple righteous before God. How could this be? The answer is, he received the righteousness that was not to him. You see, my friends, when you come to God and you plead for His mercy and grace and you open your life up to Him, He not only forgives you of your sins, He not only adopts you into His family, but the great truth, the theologians say, that He imputes, that is, He places upon our account His righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to my account so that I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and when God the Father looks at me, He doesn't see me and my depraved heart, but when I come to faith in Christ, all God the Father sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Amen! I say, isn't that good? Yeah! Yeah! But here we are, so many of us, in the church today, in the 21st century, trying to earn our way into heaven by praying enough, by giving enough, by doing all the right things, being elder brothers. But all God wants us to do is to come as we are, open our heart and life to Him, and simply pray one sentence prayer. God, even though I don't deserve it. See, I can't even do a one-sentence prayer. It's really hard for me. So I'll borrow the tax collector's prayer. God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. And instantaneously, the grace, the superabundant grace and mercy of God, which is from everlasting to everlasting, is poured out upon us. And the righteousness of Jesus is ours. We are clothed in it. And so I come to Him, as we learned last week, empty-handed. And I cry out to Him for mercy, and He hears. And I come not with a group of people. I come alone. And I speak the words to God of the old spiritual, It's me, it's me, O Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my father, but it's me, O Lord. Not the deacon, not the preacher, but it's me, O Lord. Standing 
in the need of prayer. And the point is that for those who are willing to fix their eyes on God and come to Him in humility and cry out to Him for mercy, that God hears our prayer and He makes us new and He sends us home justified to live in peace in unity with others. Did you notice it in our psalm this morning? The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for... What was the word the psalmist used? Mercy. Oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, this merciful God, there is forgiveness and grace and mercy. A Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple one day to pray. Jesus noticed that they prayed two very different prayers. One prayed, Lord, I thank You that I'm not like all those others. I'm much better than they. I do so many good things for You. And the other prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it was the latter and not the former who went home justified. So I ask you this morning, which one are you? To which of these characters do you more closely align yourself? Let those who are wise and humble take note that all who exalt themselves will one day be humbled. And those who humble themselves will one day be exalted. So says Jesus. Father, I see both of these characters in me There are times when I, like the Pharisee and the older brother, am so intent on being a good person, following rules, making rules for others to follow. But then, Lord, there are so many times when, like the tax collector, I'm just amazed at your mercy and grace because I'm so undeserving. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be wearing the clothes of Jesus' righteousness. I deserve to be damned to eternity in hell. But in your grace and mercy, you have made a way through your Son, Jesus, for me to experience life and peace. And I praise you for that. So, Lord, as you have spoken through your word today, I pray that you will prompt us to take it to the next step and act upon this. And while you are praying, my friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would say to you that that if you're here today and the Spirit has been speaking to you, that while others are heading toward the exit doors, perhaps the very best thing that you could do is to get away from the crowd for a minute and look down at your shoe tips and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
If you need some help understanding or finding out how to experience the mercy and grace of God, I want you to know at the close of the worship service that I'll be standing down here at front and would be glad to take as much time as necessary to talk to you about the wonderful plans that God has for you. A life of peace. A life that is marked by the grace of God in Jesus. So, Lord, we cry out as a body of believers today, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And we know, Lord, that you hear those heart cries and our pleas for help. And you pick us up. And the old has passed away and the new comes. We become a new creature in Christ Jesus. How we thank you for this message of the gospel, a message of grace and mercy. Now, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing as we go from this place. May we extend the same grace and mercy that we have received from you. May we now extend it to others that you bring across our path this week. And we pray and make our prayer in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord.